Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. This is Reality Asserts Itself, and we're in New York. In her 2016 book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, Rana Faruhar writes, By the late 1990s, the world was in the midst of yet another emerging market crisis, this time brought on by the further deregulation of global capital flows orchestrated by the Clinton administration. Treasury Secretary Rubin and his deputy and then successor Lawrence Summers were principal architects of these measures and finance lobbied vigorously for them. Too much money had flowed into the markets too quickly, ending up in speculative projects that were now going bust. Amazingly though, instead of widespread criticism for their choices, Greenspan, Rubin and Summers got a love letter in the form of a 1999 time cover story entitled the Committee to Save the World. So fully were the media and the government enthralled with finance that nobody seemed to raise an eyebrow when Citibank's Reed and Travelers Group Sandy Will announced the creation of the world's largest financial institution, Citigroup, in the midst of a crisis that showed just how risky such entities could be. Reed and Will employed another time-tested strategy telling government that banks needed more room to roam precisely because of the problems in the market. Banking had to get bigger in order to thrive. This line, coupled with vigorous personal lobbying, yielded the ultimate triumph for finance. In November 1999, Clinton abolished Glass-Steagall, eliminating the last vestiges of Depression-era regulation. A month earlier, Rubin, fresh off his Treasury job, became co-chairman of Citigroup, a move that would net him $15 million and 1.5 million shares of stock in his first year. Now joining us again in the studio is Rana Faruhar. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so there's always sort of this dynamic. Is it the legislation that opens the door for the kind of growth and changes in finance, or is the growth in finance create the conditions that yeah. gives them the power to get the legislation? Yeah. And it's probably both is, is, is the answer. But I think it's important in, in, in the power of finance and how pervasive this is throughout the economy. This has very little to do with Republicans and Democrats. In fact, some yeah. of the key opening doors for finance happened under the Clinton administration. Um, absolutely. I mean, if you look back just to the ability of too big to fail banks to be formed, that was something that happened under Clinton, the um, rollback of Glass-Steagall, which was the Depression era legislation that had really kept the financial system, I would argue, safe for some time. And real fast, what that is. Um, Glass-Steagall was, um, the, the, it came out of the Great Depression and basically it put investment banking, which is kind of where riskier trading lives, and commercial banking, plain vanilla, it's a wonderful life kind of banking, to be, to be simplistic, put those in two separate baskets. And so you couldn't have these banks that were doing plain vanilla lending that was taxpayer subsidized and backstopped by um, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, you couldn't have that in the same house as the risky casino-like trading. Um, under again, under Bill Clinton, that was uh, Bob Rubin, Treasury Secretary, that was rolled back. And you know, I mean, the the huge scandal was, of course, that Rubin left weeks later to become the head of Citigroup and profited to the tune of a hundred million dollars <laughs> from this this very rollback. Um, now, you could argue, and they did argue back then, that fin the financial sector had become such an important competitive advantage for the U.S. that we needed to empower it. And there's always a big debate, um, you know, London's going to eat our lunch, we've got to protect New York. Um, 
you know, what was interesting is after the dot-com crash, uh, London, which actually had lower standards even than, than New York, suffered disproportionately. They had all kinds of dodgy Russian companies IPOing, um, Chinese state-owned enterprises that weren't backstopped well. Um, so, you know, the very prudential regulation that banks often say, we don't want, we don't need, is what actually can give you a competitive advantage in the market at times like this. Uh, you talked about Ruben going to Citigroup, and Citigroup's an important part of your book and a, and a very yeah. important part of the whole financialization process. So tell us the story of Citigroup. Well, Citigroup's interesting. It was kind of there at every major turning point. Um, Citigroup was, um, it played a role in the city national, or na actually it was national city at the time of the Great uh, Great Depression, played a role in the run-up to that crisis. Uh, it played a role in lobbying um, following that. Um, the, the breakup of Citigroup uh, sort of tracked this safer period uh, in, in uh, the banking sector from, say, the 30s to the 70s. And then when Walter Riston, who was a former CEO of Citigroup, came in in the 70s and became sort of um, the model for today's more glamorous bankers. You know, I'm, I keep seeing ads in the subway for Billions, which is this new you know, HBO show about, uh, or a Netflix show about um, uh, financiers. And he was kind of the proto prototypical financier with the fast red car and the beautiful um, uh, TV anchor wife and, and, and so on and so forth. So that marks a period where Banking went from being um, the it's a wonderful life model to more the glamour model that you saw. And city and city's rise really tracked that entire process. And then, of course, um, when the great financial crisis came, there was the famous quote from the the Citibank CEO that as long as the music is playing, you've got to keep dancing. You know, you have to keep keep moving around. Um, so Citigroup, I have an entire chapter on their history, is just a wonderful lens into one institution that kind of um, exemplifies finance in America, I would say. Well, talk about the, how it gets so big and yeah. how it gets so risky. Well, part of it, interestingly, came out of this period in the 70s where you started to have a deregulation of, of the financial sector. Politicians um, wanted more money to flow into the economy. Um, they did that in part by opening the doors to foreign capital. Citigroup was very big in some of the, the deals in the 70s and in the 80s um, that led a lot of emerging market money and a lot of golf money in. It also played an important part in some of the um, uh, foreign banking scandals, the peso crisis, um, various national emerging, market, national emerging market debt scandals. Um, you could often find cities' footprints on that. Um, and you know, like so many of the big banks, which by the way are even bigger now, you know, we should we should stop and say that you would imagine that 2008 would have been the apex of the too big to fail banks. In fact, all it did was create uh, an environment in which the the larger ones could actually eat up the smaller ones. That now they're far big. bigger now and than they were. They're far bigger. They have individually, they have much more lobbying power than they did. J.P. Morgan actually is probably, I would say, the strongest financial institution in terms of its political clout right now. I mean, you saw um, in the last few years Jamie Dimon literally being, able, who's the CEO of Citibank, being able to call up Washington and you know work riders into the budget bill uh, uh, at his at his behest um, because uh, there's so much power. You mentioned in part one a meeting you were at where yeah. a representative of the Obama administration said, "Don't worry, Dodd Frank, it's all okay now." <laughs> Um, not only was Dodd-Frank not okay, and not only was it Swiss cheese, as you and others have described it, and I think in your book you think most of it, any company with a bunch of good lawyers could figure out their way around the rules, yeah. 
But now under Trump and the Republicans, it looks like there won't even be that. Well, exactly. And, you know, of course, it's been somewhat easy for both um, folks on the left and the right to argue, well, the current system is broken. Maybe we should just throw it out. You can make that argument, and I did make that argument. I, I do think that simplicity is really, really important when it comes to financial regulation. The banks would love you to think that there's no simple way to regulate a bank. It's, oh my gosh, it's too complicated, you can't possibly understand it. But believe me, you know, I've, I've been a business journalist for 25 years. When the bankers start throwing around acronyms, complicated terms, um, you know, making you feel badly for asking dumb questions, it means that you're on to something and that you're asking the right questions. And the real question is, how do we craft a financial system that supports the real economy? That's really the only question that matters. Tier one capital, leverage ratios, these can be gamed and manipulated till the cows come home, and, and they are right now. Um, what we really need, I think, is essentially two things. We need a clear narrative, which is finance should support the real economy. We need banks to be holding enough capital, um, enough cash on their own balance sheets to actually um, support themselves if there should be a crisis. And it's interesting, if you go back to the um, 1920s financial crash and the Great Depression, one interesting point is none of the big New York banks went under. And that's because their leverage ratios were far better than they are today. I mean, today, your average bank does business with 95% borrowed money on a daily basis. It's hard to think of any other industry that you could get away with working with 95, I mean, not even 50% borrowed money in most other industries would be considered reasonably safe. And yet, here's an industry that sits at the center of our economy that works with 95% borrowed money. Well, they should be able to hold at least um, you know, 15, 20% um, of an asset base against their potential liabilities, and then maybe taxpayers wouldn't have to, to bail them out. So that's point number two. And then point number three is, I think we've got to have a clear line between risky trading and plain vanilla lending. I mean, that's just kind of common sense. You don't um, do taxpayer insurance when hedge fund guys are trying to uh, you know, deal in dodgy Russian debt. It's just, it's just not a good idea. Okay, in the next segment, we're going to talk about the profound debt throughout the world and in the United States and just what that means in terms of the coming crisis. So please join us for the next in our series of interviews with Rana Faruhar on The Real News Network.